Welcome to this ECS Publishing Group podcast. I'm Mark Lawson, president of ECS Publishing Group. Today we're very pleased to welcome Scott Hislop into our offices for a discussion about the life and work of Paul Mons. Scott literally wrote the book on Paul Mons with a published biography on Dr. Mons entitled The Journey Was Chosen. Scott has a DMA in organ and church music from the University of Michigan and is director of parish music at St. Lorenz Lutheran Church in Frankenmuth, Michigan. Scott, welcome to this podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let me start this conversation by giving just a little background to help our listeners understand the significance of Paul Mons to this company. Morningstar Music Publishers is one of the companies under the ECS Publishing Group umbrella. Morningstar was founded in 1987 by Rodney Schrank, who had previously been the editor at Concordia Publishing House, where Paul Mons was originally published. During the fallout from the denominational disputes that were taking place in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, Dr. Mons was able to retain his copyrights and place them with the newly founded Morningstar. This move allowed Morningstar to immediately have some premier publications that were extremely popular and brought much needed recognition to the company. that bit of background, we want to just start our conversation with Scott. Scott, why don't you tell us a little about your background and how you first became acquainted with Paul Mons? The honest truth is I can't remember when I first heard the name of Paul Mons, but I, I never remember a time where I didn't know that name. Uh, yeah, I grew up in a suburb of a south suburb of Minneapolis, Richfield, Minnesota, and as a good Lutheran boy growing up in Minneapolis, uh, the name of Paul Mons in the 60s, 70s, and so forth were uh, as big as Michael Jordan's name was in Chicago in the 1990s, and that's, that's not overstatement, it's the truth. And um, my first encounter with Paul Mons and his music came when my home church, Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in Richfield, Minnesota, put in their first pipe organ, a, a, a small uh, a tracker instrument by Charles Hendrickson. And Paul was the consultant for the project, and then he played two uh, back-to-back recitals at the church to overflow audiences at that time, which speaks a lot for the times that that all happened in as well. And not only, you know, Paul always included a, a set of hymns in his recitals, and he, he featured all of the organ repertoire you would expect to hear a recitalist played, and he played it beautifully. Um, you know, it was, it was remarkable to hear an organ in a church sound like that. I you know, regretfully can't say that I heard the organ uh, uh, featured that way very often, to be polite, um, uh, in, in, in my early days. And uh, but what what really grabbed my attention was the way he treated the hymns. Yeah. And uh, you know, in the book, I use the reference there that uh, the first time I heard him playing the hymns, 
Yeah, it was like that segment in The Wizard of Oz where Dorothy goes from the black and white of Kansas <laughs> to the technicolor world of mm-hmm. Oz. And that's precisely the, the same feeling I had. I mean, who knew you could have that much fun with a hymn? Right. I, I mean, it, it, it almost seemed decadent uh, to a very parochial 11-year-old Missouri Synod boy at yeah. that time. It's interesting to hear your story because I do, obviously, a lot of traveling around and many, many organists come up and say, you know, I decided to do this because I heard Paul Mons do this hymn festival, and I knew when I heard that that that's what I wanted to do. I think David Cherwin has a yeah. similar story of, yeah. of hearing a hymn festival and going, I'm going to forsake my rock music ways and become <laughs> a ch- church organist. So Yeah, mine uh, was a little different in that, uh, again, going through the Lutheran parochial school system, you know, my teachers had pegged me early on as having aptitude with music and started uh, uh, campaigning my parents that he needs to go into church music, he needs to be a teacher in the Lutheran school system, etc. And frankly, at that point in my time, I just wasn't that interested. But then I heard Paul, and that was a game changer. Yeah. So Paul was born in 1919, and he passed away in 2009. So this being the 100th anniversary of his birth, there have been a lot of hymn festivals and celebrations around the country that have featured his works. Um... I really think it's a good time to reflect on his legacy and what he left us and kind of do a summing up of the important different aspects of his life. Um, if you were to do ask someone to ask you to do a little summary of why do you think Paul Mons was important and why is it important that we continue to look at him, what are some of the things that come to mind for you? There are many things that come to mind, um, and in no particular order. Um, I would say the first is he he viewed the profession, if you will, the vocation of being a cantor in the church as a, as truly a high and holy calling, um, if not equal to, not far below that of a pastor or mm-hmm. cler- clergyman, because he truly viewed his role and expected his students and disciples to also view it as that you were a co-partner in the ministry of the word when you were either directing a choir or, or proclaiming the gospel from the organ. Um, so I think that that was an important thing. And then there are, there's a lot of sub-layers to that one. I mean, that you know, you always, you owed it to um, the calling, you owed it to the people in the pews to be as prepared as you possibly could be for, for, for leading those people in worship. And that's an area he certainly led by example. I mean, uh, the, this, this last May when we were in Chicago for his 100th uh, hymn festival in at St. Luke's, I was speaking with um, David Abramson, the pastor there, he was saying in Paul's tenure at St. Luke, they had to replace the pedal board three different times because he wore them out. Um, because he he was essentially in there practicing all day, and he was well into his eighties at that uh, mm-hmm. point in time. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a remarkable work ethic that he brought, and he expected it out of his uh, students as yeah. well. Yeah, he um, Paul had the unique ability to not only be a top flight musician. But his care for wanting to relate to the people. Yes. I think you mentioned um, something that he told you at one point. Uh, yeah. I love this quote. Yeah. I, I did an interview with Paul back at his 75th birthday for the American Organist magazine. And, uh, you know, that was sort of at the beginning of the beginnings of the high water mark for the tensions between uh, contemporary church music and traditional church music and so forth. And I asked Paul, 
what piece of advice he would give to a young music student starting out um, these days in uh, uh, church music and expecting something more along the lines of, well, make sure you get your practicing in and know the texts, etc., etc. His comment was, love the people you are called to serve. And that's a really profound comment when you start to really think about all the implications the word love has. Mm -hmm. You know, not just rolling over and giving way, but loving them the way a parent loves a child and you do your best for them. So um, Paul had an extraordinary career as organist and church musician, and sometimes the hidden figure behind all of that was his wife, Ruth. Uh, many of us who had a lot of exposure to Paul know the importance of that relationship, but if they'd never met Paul, they might not know about Ruth. Tell me a little bit about what it was like working with Ruth and Paul on this book. <laughs> well, it became uh, readily apparent right from the get-go that official or not, Ruth was the editor of the book. Uh, you know, where she she and a, a sweeter soul with a, a, a spine of steel you, you couldn't mm-hmm. meet. I mean, just a, a wonderful, wonderful woman. And um, just to backtrack for a second, I, I firmly believe, and the further along I get with my life and time, and as I've read more and studied more and talked more with Paul's family, the reason that Paul Mons was Paul Mons was equally in part to Ruth Mons mm-hmm. being herself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she truly uh, encouraged him, not encouraged him, but almost all lovingly demanded of him that he spend his time practicing, that he spend his time writing and uh, traveling. I mean, there were there was a year in the 1960s that he had a leave of absence from Mount Olive so he could be the accompanist for the Roger Wagner Chorale. Uh, and that was all at Ruth's behest. And that, you know, Paul had always made the joke, if it wasn't for Ruth, I would have been a piano player in a bar somewhere. And I, I think that those were also very... A good one. A, a good one, yes. <laughs> a, both a good piano player and a good bar. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Ruth was just a totally remarkable um, person to deal with. 
Uh, and yeah, in terms of my work with uh, the biography and that, yeah, you know, Paul would, uh, it was it was always entertaining, you know, when I would be, had the privilege of sitting with the two of them, uh, uh, you know, Paul would be telling a story in that, and all of a sudden Ruth would get this sweet smile on her face and just sort of shake her head, no, and then she'd put her, her hand on Paul and say, well, dear, it wasn't quite like that. <laughs> and then she would give her editorial uh, ver- version of what had happened. And as I think I mentioned to you yesterday, the funny part to the whole thing became when I started um, doing some work on the biography with their son John and uh, I mentioned to John uh, one of these scenarios where you know his mom had edited dad and John paused and said well it wasn't quite like that either <laughs> and then John gave me yet his version, his, his version uh, which I took to be the, 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 yeah. the, the, the final version and so yeah. John became sort of the undercover editor to Ruth and, yeah. and that so well, you mentioned something there that I want to go back and follow up on. Um, that is also the importance of Mount Olive in mm-hmm. all of this. Mount yeah. Olive Lutheran Church in Minneapolis. And Paul went there early on before he went to Europe to study. And um, that church was phenomenally supportive of Paul. Yeah. So why don't we just... I was going to do this later, but why don't we just go ahead, since you mentioned Mount Olive, and say a little bit about that church and his experience with that church. Well, I think Mount Olive was uh, was and is, remains still a really remarkable parish, um, committed to uh, spreading the gospel in the, the neighborhood and community that they're at. But they have also been wise enough to realize that one of the most valuable ways they could do that was with the musicians that they've had. And you know, when Paul was first um, called to serve at Mount Olive, um, I believe he was a, a director of Christian education in charge of the youth programs, uh, Sunday school, and many, many other things beyond the music program, which he was also tasked with. Now, Mount, Mount Olive was unusual um, in those days in particular because it's never had a parish school. And most Missouri Synod churches, um, especially back in that time, always had a parish school along with them. Mm-hmm. So Paul didn't have that involvement. He had been the principal of a school in St. Paul before he was called to uh, be at uh, Mount Olive. But I think as Paul's talents um, developed and as Paul's talents were revealed to the congregation, um, they, they wisely chose to encourage him to put in more time into the music end of his ministry. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. other areas were paired off to others, allowing Paul to um, truly fu- function and focus uh, solely on music. And that certainly, I think, reached its, culm- not necessarily a culm- an early culmination, we'll call it, uh, when um, in the 1950s he received a Fulbright grant to um, go over to Belgium and study with Fleur Peters. Yeah. So let me back into that just a little bit. So we know that Paul grew up in Cleveland, came from a family of immigrants that had immigrated over. And um, I remember the story, one of the stories I like is about him going by the organ builder and looking in the windows. Yeah. So can you do you, can you recall that story and tell it a little? Well, the organ builder was the whole camp organ mm-hmm. company, and my understanding is that uh, Paul, as a young boy, was walking by, and uh, he happened to be by the Holt Camp company, and he looked in the window and was peering in at the window, and uh, uh, Walter Holt Camp Sr., the, the, the founder 
of the the firm came out and rather gruffly said, "What are you looking at?" And when he explained, "Well, you know, I, I I'm interested. I want to know about that." They let him come in, and he got to play some of the th- works, the organs that were in the building, and that and uh, began a uh, again just more fuel on the fire. As and I think as they were his. rather impressed with him, even his first oh, yeah. time that he walked in and could play the organ. Yeah, well, so. well, and I, I think part of that was they had an organ in the family home. You know, his father um, Otto, like many people of that generation loved to tinker and play with things and so Otto had and who Otto was not a trained musician so to speak but um, Otto had cobbled together a practice pipe organ that was in their home mm-hmm. and uh, uh, but Paul had been told as a young child you have to take piano lessons before you can touch the organ so piano was means to an end to start with mm-hmm. but uh, mm-hmm. went on from there so Paul had many different influences in his life through Concordia, Chicago, uh, had many teachers, but I think one of the things that really did make a huge difference in his life was the Fulbright Scholarship and being allowed to go to Europe and study. Could you briefly talk about who he studied with there and uh, maybe some of the influences that you think that we see and the differences between between when he went and when he came back. Yeah, and help keep me on track with this, because I also want to make a comment. Paul was unusual for that time and place. Um, he was always a little bit of a troublemaker. And when, when Paul was a student at Concordia, at that time, Concordia Teachers College in River Forest, Illinois, um, in the summers, he would go back home to Cleveland. And um, he had been studying with several organists in the, the, the Edwin Arthur Craft in, in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And um, he had been invited to play a recital at the Roman Catholic Cathedral in Cleveland, which he did. And word got back to Concordia, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. he was called into the press president's office and was censored for having played in a Roman Catholic church and was told, if you do that again, we'll kick you out. You're you're done here. Um, The reason that's, uh, uh, I think, a a player in this question is because when Mons received the Fulbright, you know, 20 years later, 10, 15 years later, um, he uh, had originally hoped to study with a a German by the name of Michael Schneider. Um, And uh, something had happened with Schneider, his health, or that that it became impossible for uh, uh, Mons to study with Schneider. So he had consulted with uh, another legendary musician of that time, Walter Buzin, and Buzin had recommended to him, well, why don't you go work with Fuller Peters in, in Belgium? And uh, I think Mons was certainly familiar with Peters, but the issue there was, again, Peters was Roman Catholic. And uh, uh, Mons took a fair amount of flack from people for why are you going to study organ with a Roman Catholic as opposed to a good German Lutheran? And uh, I think the, re- the results are, are, mm-hmm. are obvious mm-hmm. from his life. Pa- uh, Peters was an extremely important influence on Mons. Um, Mons had had brilliant teachers here in this country from uh, uh, Kraft in Cleveland to Eigenschenk Ar- in Chicago. Arthur Jennings. And Arthur Jennings in Minneapolis. But those gentlemen were all from a different era and time, especially Jennings, who was a significant person in Mons's life. Um, but uh, Arthur B. Jennings was very much a romantic, um, very much out of the early American symphonic school of organ playing, and that's how he approached hymns and everything, and he expected his students, which mm-hmm. Paul was one of, to, mm-hmm. to, to do the same. So Mons had said, after he, when he went over to study with, with Peters, 
years that his, everything from his technique to um, just the whole way he thought about music was changed and turned upside down on him. And when he came back from that time, he said it was a full year before he would play for Arthur Jennings because right. he was afraid that Jennings would feel like he was disrespecting him because he had not turned his back on it, but had... I think, you know, Mons was always very practical in the sense that he took the best from what he had had from uh, uh, Jennings and took that into his, made it a part of his life and aesthetic, took the best from Pater's and made that the part of his aesthetic just to uh, uh, make it a whole at that time. Mm -hmm. And then when he was in Europe, he also had a chance to study with Valka, correct? Correct, yeah. With uh, Helmut Valka in Frankfurt, I believe. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, you know, he loved telling the story of, Valka was a blind organist, and um, uh, he loved telling the story of uh, one of the first times he played for Valka, and he was playing a a Bach prelude and fugue, and you know he was playing away, and all of a sudden Valka came up and turned the page on him, and uh, Paul had to stop because he turned the page in the wrong place, and when Paul stopped, Valka said, "Oh, pardon me, what edition are you using?" And Paul told him what edition he was using. He said, I apologize. I thought you were using this edition. <laughs> and sure enough, the page turn would have been in the right place in that edition. So, yeah, it just a, a, another remarkable uh, character. But the, the Valka years were what really started to form Mons as a service player. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when he became really familiar with the whole al- alternatum praxis of, of playing, where sometimes the organ takes a stanza of him, sometimes the choir sta- takes a stanza of him, so, and then, of course, there were the congregational stanzas right. in that. And I think that from what my understanding and hearing Paul talk about this, and it may have not been till later in his life he even came to this, was the fact that so much of his understanding of color and passion came from Floor Paters, and so much of his technical ability and thinking through what he was going to do with the hymns and things came from Valka. And, it, and it, the combination of the two teachers really made a huge difference, yeah, I think. Again, it was that sense of taking the best from the different the different sources and making it his own. Um, I think that from, you know, you, you, you can't have the discussion about Peters and Mons without also um, acknowledging the fact that, you know, Mons was really schooled in the French school of organ improvisation, which is completely grounded in music theory, having a wonderful foundation in music theory, in form and analysis mm-hmm. and structure. Uh, you know, there, there was always a joke uh, that gets told about um, Marcel Dupre, that he used to claim that he spent most of his time practicing his improvisations. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, and it's true. I mean, you need a, a solid arsenal of tools to pull on mm-hmm. when, you're, when you're doing an improvisation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Mons knew that you know, as yeah. well as anyone. He did. He did. This is the first of two episodes with Scott Hislop, discussing the life and work of Paul Mons. Look for part two to hear more about Mons after he returned from his European studies. As always, thank you for listening. Check the description for more information on the pieces that you heard during this episode of the ECS Publishing Group podcast.